0: just to finish things up. Over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the process of interpretation using the passage found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Today, we're going to discuss the process of application, false substitutes for application, and the application of our passage that we've been studying in Revelation. Let's pray as we start. Holy Father, I pray that you would be speaking forth from your word today, that it would be something that grabs us, and Lord, that we might be able to think through the applications of the different passages that we encounter, not in a merely academic way, God, but in one that actually changes the way we act, and Lord, that allows us to um, recapture the joy that you've actually designed us for, and God, I pray that you'd protect us from the idols and from the things that Uh, That promises that, but won't actually give it. Lord, help us to believe you and what you say in your word. And Lord, give me the the words to speak today. Help me to be clear. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of each one of us as we listen. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. so, throughout our Sunday School series, we have been using a three-step method for studying Bible passages. Somebody, please, tell me what those three steps are. Yeah, Craig. Very good. What does it say? What does it mean? How how does it work? Or how do I apply it? Or we could say it just using three terms. What would those three terms be? Yeah, Emma. Very good. Observe, interpret, and apply. Now, why is it so important to remember this method? Why these three steps? Because all too often, we do not do all of them. And because of that, our Bible study proves unprofitable. It's common for us in our country, and maybe just Christians all around the world, to study the Bible without taking time to do all three steps. Often we try to interpret a passage without taking time to properly observe. What is the result? Yes, Steve. That's right you're going to come up with something that's inaccurate, incomplete, or just outright false, because you don't have the whole passage in mind. Not just the context, but not taking time to actually observe the grammar and repetition and other parts of the passage. So not taking time to observe, missing that first part of the step, is a serious problem. But that's not the only problem. We also oftentimes are missing the last step. People not only neglect proper observation, they also take little to no time To think about application and this is also a serious problem recall that when we say application what we're really asking is how does it work not does it work but how does it work in other words how does the principle I see in the passage work out in my life how can I practice what the passage is exhorting me to do or how can I protect myself from the danger shown in this passage We want to be answering questions along these lines. One of the amazing aspects of the Bible is that it is timeless in its application. It has an original historical context, which, as we have seen, is very important for us to recreate and understand. But we ought not to say, oh, well, that was then. The world is a very different place now, and so I can't actually use what the Bible is saying here. Or... This passage is written for someone else. It's not written for me. It's not relevant to me and my situation. Actually, the Bible and all its parts are written for us in mind. Even us in America today in the 21st century. Yes, excuse me, my nose is a little uncooperative. Some parts may be more relevant to us, but all parts are relevant and deserve our application. Could we back up such a claim with the Bible itself? That every part of the Bible is relevant to us? Exactly, right? The, hopefully that's one of the scriptures that you've committed to memory. 2 Timothy 3.16, what does it say, Steve? Very good, very good. Yes, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'll just focus on the first part, which says, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable. You might come to certain parts of the Bible, and we talked about this earlier in the course, you say, how could this be profitable to me? But the Bible already tells us, all of the Bible is profitable for you. Or there's another verse that we sometimes reference, 1 Corinthians 10.11. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and referring to people in the Old Testament, and how God judged them for um, grumbling against him and for rebelling against him, he says, Paul writes, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. We're part of that group too. We're also in the end of the ages. So The things in the Old Testament that Paul was referring to, and the things in the New Testament were actually written for our instruction. And, As we noted, even in our passage in Revelation, the last statement made by Jesus to the church of Laodicea is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, plural. And that's significant. Because that means, even though there was a message to each individual church, they all had something that they could learn from the letters to the other churches. They had things that they could apply for things that were not directly spoken to them. So, yes, it is true we will not apply some scriptures in the same way that its original audience did. Many times we will, but sometimes we won't. Scriptures like the law of burnt offerings in the Old Testament, we're not going to be applying that in the same way. Or in the New Testament, admonitions about how to use the gift of languages in church, or wearing head coverings, or eating things sacrificed to idols. Still, All of these scriptures are very important for us, and they illustrate principles from God that we are to put into practice in our lives today. Let's look at one of the topics I just mentioned as an example of the application process. According to New Testament instruction, let me ask you, is it right for a believer to eat meat that had previously been offered up to idols in a worship service, before being resold in the marketplace. Is it right for Christians to eat such meat? Yes, Jay. Right. You have to, so let me break that down, what you just said. It is okay. It is right to eat that meat, as long as you're giving thanks for it. Except if it would cause another brother to, to, as you said, be offended or to stumble. If it would cause him to violate his conscience. Now, there's some scriptures that are really relevant to this topic. The key instructions come from 1 Corinthians. You can actually turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8. I also will have the passage up here, but I don't know if all of you will be able to see it. But the New Testament instruction is that, yes, you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. An idol is nothing. However, you cannot if it will violate your conscience or cause someone else to violate his conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7-13. That's the left passage up here on the screen. I'll read it to you. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says... However, not all men have this knowledge, this knowledge that idols don't really mean anything. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, for if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. There's another passage that says more about this, 1 Corinthians 10, so you can just jump a chapter or two. I want to read this one as well, because it's a little bit more insight into what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 to 30. Paul says more. All things are lawful, But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But, If anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So hopefully in these verses you're seeing the concept. It's not that someone else's conscience can dictate what you do in your life, but that when someone has a weaker conscience, that you are showing sensitivity to him when it comes to eating food sacrificed to idols. However, unless you have some polytheistic friends who really want to serve you up some idol meat, you probably will not be able to apply this verse directly. However, hopefully you notice that there are principles evident in this exhortation which can and must be applied in your lives. I ask you, what principles what principles do we see here in these passages about eating food offered to idols do we want to take note of even for our own lives yeah okay so even though we might not be talking about food, still this concept of, am I going to be pressuring, or am I going to be doing something that's going to um, reasonably cause my brother to stumble, then I need to avoid it, or I need to uh, um, be sensitive in that situation to that brother. And that's exactly what we're talking about. <clears throat> um, because what, that's certainly an application, but what is, the, what is the principle here, or what are the principles that we see in this passage? Why should we do that? Rob, um, or I ask all of you, why? Why would we want to do that? Yeah. Hmm. Mm, that's a good insight. It's a little bit uh, different than the main topic we're talking about, but certainly that is true. If we didn't have this concept here, that would, that would create some sort of uh, disconnect between, well, how am I going to be witnessing the unbelievers when I have this situation, and and I've got some people, some of my Christian brethren, who feel this way. So yeah, this, this structure is relevant for the principle of we want to be a witness to those that don't know the Lord. But what are we trying to protect most of all here in this passage? Or... The principle. What is the principle that we see here? Yeshe. It even gives us that, right? That, uh, it actually tells us the principle that's motivating all of this that goes beyond the passage. This really is about just being sensitive, doing what's really going to edify your brethren. And here is going to be protecting what? What's one way that you can edify your brethren according to these passages? In order to protect what? What would he be violating that would cause him to stumble? His conscience, right? And Why is that such a big deal? Why, is this, why does it matter so much that you don't cause your brother or you don't cause yourself to violate your conscience? I mean, your conscience is wrong. Maybe it should be violated. Does the passage show us anything about consciences? Or I'll ask you this. According to these passages, 1 Corinthians 8, 7-13, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23... Oh, sorry, that should be 23-30. to 30. What will happen to your brother if he violates your conscience? Emma. Yes, that's pretty strong language, right? If we go back to uh, the first passage, it says in verse 11, 1 Corinthians eight eleven: For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined... Just because you encouraged him to violate his conscience. And if you want to understand how that works practically, I I think we can follow it. That once he violates his conscience there, well, suddenly everything comes up, everything is up for um, argument in his mind. Well, why follow that? I mean, I violated this, so why does it matter if I keep this other rule or this other thing that I said I was supposed to keep? If you've ever violated your own conscience, you know this to be the case. It's a very, very, very terrible place to be. Very dangerous. And so he's he says even in this passage, it's so important that you don't violate your conscience or someone else's, because it would ruin him. So, even in these cases where he believes something that isn't true, not necessary to do in the Bible, don't pressure him. Don't put him into a situation where he's going to be encouraged by you to violate his conscience. Does that mean you can't talk to him about that, or you can't instruct him out of those erroneous beliefs? No, it doesn't mean you can't do that, but it does mean that you want to be really sensitive And you want to make sure that you don't cause him to violate his conscience. Clearly, there is a limit to this idea. It's not that we are going to be bound by every legalistic thought by every Christian. Some, Just to show you this, some Jews felt that it was wrong to eat with Gentile Christians. We see this actually mentioned by Paul, I think, in Galatians. But He said, I'm not going to just show deference to them. This is a serious error. It needs to be confronted, even publicly. And he confronts Peter, Paul confronts Peter, about withdrawing from the Gentile Christian brethren just for the sake of not offending some others. He says, this is wrong. So there is a nuance to this principle. There is a nuance to this principle that we don't have time to fully explore this morning. But still, we do see the concept of showing deference to the brethren, especially when it comes to their consciences. Because their consciences, even if somewhat erroneous, or even if holding to things that aren't required in the Bible, it's very important that they do not violate their consciences. So, Rob already is, uh, with what he answered earlier, a little bit on the way to my next question, but what are some ways that we can apply this principle today? You mentioned when it comes to certain cultural customs, like maybe even hair length. Okay. Can let's brainstorm together a little bit. What are some other areas or what are some ways that we can see this principle playing out in our own day? Yeah. 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 That's a that's a really good way of saying that, Steve. Alcohol is a good way that we can see this principle playing out especially for someone who's a new believer or somebody who's come out of a background of alcohol abuse, you want to be sensitive to that. You don't want to, um, don't want to give a, a poor example, especially at the beginning, or you don't want to give an example that could mislead, and you don't want to put him in a situation where he would feel pressured to, to violate his conscience, to drink alcohol, or even be around it if he feels like that would be wrong. What would be another instance of applying this principle? Is it just alcohol? Francisco. Yeah, that's another great example, right? Our entertainment. It's not just about food or drink. Our entertainment choices are things that we often have um, convictions about. Con- or choices in our conscience. For instance, if, if you want to do a movie night, and you have some believing friends, you have some unbelieving friends, or maybe just have believing friends who are over, and you say, oh, what movie do you want to watch? And someone says, oh, I really want to watch... This R-rated movie, I really want to watch Django Unchained, or I really, really want to watch this one movie. And then one of your friends says, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't watch R-rated movies. I don't feel like it would be right to watch R-rated movies. And he's the one, the one person out of nine friends who feels that way. Everybody's like, ah, come on. We can feel tempted in that situation to, to pressure him to violate his conscience. To say, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. Everybody else wants to watch it. God says, no, no. You instead are going to show love to your brother. Find a different movie to watch. Or if everybody else is set on watching that movie, do something else with him. Don't let him just be by himself, not experiencing the love of the rest of the brethren. Stand with him. Encourage him in his conscience. <clears throat> what are some other examples? We've looked at alcohol, some a uh, food and drink choice today. Entertainment. Okay, yeah, maybe there's some music that you would like to listen to, or that other people would feel like would be wrong to listen to, or to be, to be around, that's another area. What else? I think maybe one that we might not think of right away is actually some transportation choices. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been with a friend who has, maybe you're in New York City, and you see those little signs that say, walk, don't walk. And you have a friend who says, well, it says don't walk, so we're not allowed to walk. and you're like, oh, come on! Everyone else is walking. This is what we do in New York. All right, we'll just catch up with you later. Right? No, that's actually a really dangerous thing to do, because if you leave your friend behind, he's going to feel pressured. He's going to say, well, I don't want to be left alone. I mean, everybody else, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Even though I feel like this is wrong, I'll just do it. Because that right there, that little thing, could be what pierces his conscience. Yeah, Francisco. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really valuable valuable um example of what we're talking about. Thanks for sharing that. So, already you're seeing that this thing that was only talking about food being sacrificed to idols went far beyond that. And actually, it's really relevant to us. We have convictions, people around us have convictions about certain things that we want to be sensitive to. Especially if they're new believers, or if they have a background in, in, uh, in that area. And so that might mean finding out a little bit. If you're going to host a dinner party, you might want to check with the people that are coming, if you've never had them over before, if they don't mind if you serve pork. Or if they don't mind if you serve something that has blood in it. Because maybe, maybe they feel like they can't do that. You want to put them in a situation where they feel pressured to violate their conscience. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't um, instruct them. Or that you can't help them to come to a better understanding of the issue that you're talking about. But not in the moment. Not in that situation when they might say, uh, Okay, I guess you're right. Because how do you really know whether you've persuaded him? Or whether you've just pressured him to violate his conscience? <clears throat> so we're seeing here this idea of application. What we've really done is the process of application. I want to actually give you um, a formal breakdown of what we just did. But we we took time to understand the principles, and then we asked, how do those principles look on our own day? So let me show you the process of application and define each one of the steps. The book we've been going through, Living by the Book, breaks down the process of application into four steps, but I'm only going to do it in three. I'm going to combine two of them. Here's the process of application. We want to do three things. Know, meditate and relate, and then practice. First, know. We need to know. This, again, is a call to understand, or I'll say it this way, is a call to make sure that we have properly observed and interpreted a passage. As we already noted, application is difficult and dangerous if you don't actually understand what God is communicating in the passage. So You need to make sure that you actually know what it says. You actually understand the true meaning, the originally intended meaning of the author. Once you do know that, once you know what the author intended and how the audience would have perceived what he wrote, then you can much more easily identify true principles. The principles that God was communicating in that biblical writing that go beyond even that specific situation. We need to understand the principles in the passage if we're going to be able to apply those principles in our own lives. Now if the term principle seems a little bit unclear to you, just think of it like the moral of a story. What can we learn from the passage about how we ought to live? You should be able to identify that once you've diligently and deeply studied the text. What is the true idea expressed about reality, or about how I ought to live or not live, according to God? In our example of food being sacrificed to idols, we did see More than one principle, but they all come from a a true interpretation. That violating a person's conscience is dangerous and to be actively avoided. And that God has called us to give up our rights or freedoms in order to love our brothers. Especially to protect their consciences. So once we see the principles in the passage, we then go on to the next step. And the next step requires time. Just like with observations, application takes time. The second thing we need to do is meditate and relate. Two things happening at the same time, but they're really interconnected. This is why I combine them. When I say "meditate," I don't mean the mystical type of meditation, the alm or anything like that. What does it mean to meditate on something? Sometimes in our songs that we sing here in church. What do you mean go over? That's exactly right. Great definition, Shay. To go over it in your mind, to think about it, to contemplate, to turn it over. That's exactly what we're talking about. You want to do that, and you also want to relate. Now, what does it mean to relate to something? Yeah, Emma. That's right. A connection to yourself. Just like when we say the phrase, oh, I can relate to that. I have something in my life that connects with what you just said. We want to do the same thing. We identify the principles in the no step, and then we think about them and ask, "How do these connect into my own life?" We meditate and relate on the principles of the passage. Again, this step gets easier the better we understand the passage. <laughs> when we can really recapture the historical situation, we realize really how similar to it we really are. How similar to it we really are. Just like the people in the Bible, we see the need for that principle and how we can apply it much more easily. When doing this step, be careful to consider all aspects of your life, every area of your life, because God's principles are very far-reaching. As we saw, something about food being sacrificed to idols can impact you in the way that, not only that you eat and drink, but also in the way that you enjoy your leisure time, or the way that you get around, or your relationships with other people. In the same way, When you encounter principles from the passage, you want to ask yourself, how does this impact my friends and family and my relationships with them? How does it impact my job, the way I shop, the service I do for the church, the way I seek leisure, my sex life, my driving habits? God's word reaches into every area and we want it to go to those places. Ask how the principles affect every area. But this is not something that you'll see right away. It's not like you can take 15 minutes necessarily and just be like, okay, I've come up with all the applications of this passage. Probably never exhaust all the applications. Even though there's one true meaning, there of course are many, many applications. But you won't even begin to scratch the surface unless you take time. You've got to take time to think about it. Often, I find that when I'm arrested by a certain principle from the Bible, based on study or by the instruction of the Word, It's only after I've thought about it for maybe a week that I begin to say, oh wow, I now see a much fuller application. But even then, there are weeks after that where I'll say, whoa, there's another thing I didn't even consider about that principle. Another way that I can apply it. Meditating on a passage can be something that you do by yourself in seclusion and some specifically set aside time. But can also be just throughout your day when you're waiting for certain things like getting your gas pumped at the gas station or waiting to pick up the kids from school. Or it could be something that you actually do with other people. Discussing what you've learned from the Bible is actually a great way to meditate on it. Not only does it help others meditate, but based on your discussion, you now have new things to think about in relation to that passage. We took time to meditate and relate together, even discuss, on principles regarding food sacrificed to idols. And we saw that indeed it has many applications in our own time this is what we want to do in the second step of the application process. Questions so far in these first two steps? Or comments? So we want to make sure that we know the passage and the principles God communicates in it. And then we also want to take time, a large amount of time, to think through the passage and how it relates to us in every aspect of our lives. But all of this, would mean nothing if we didn't do the last step, which is practice. When I say practice, I don't mean to pretend or get ready to do something. I mean to actually do it. The Bible says it's not the hearers of the word who are justified, but the doers. We want to bring our Bible study all the way through to this point. Because here's where we get to enjoy God. We get to enjoy God by becoming more like him, and as we've been discussing in men's discipleship, by giving God to others through good deeds. <clears throat> we want to be changed from glory to glory, just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, being transformed into the image of Jesus. As we noted earlier throughout our Sunday School series, to know the truth, but to not do it, would just put added wrath on us. Or, if we're God's kids, more discipline. Because God doesn't want, us to, doesn't want to leave us there. He who knew his master's will but did not do it, he will, or, yeah, he will be beaten with many blows. You don't want to be one of those. <clears throat> so, the application process, know, meditate, and relate. We want to make sure that we actually put it into practice. Now, this again is something that is often missing in our own Bible studies. We want to put it back. We want to put it back in its rightful place. This is where our Bible study should end. unfortunately, A lot of times it doesn't end this way, not only because we just forget about it, but because we substitute something else for application, and we think we have applied the scriptures. That's the next thing I want to talk about. There are, our, our author, again, Howard Hendricks, has identified five dangerous substitutes for real application. You do not want to use one of the following as your application. If you do, you are only deceiving yourself. And there are, again, five substitutes for application, and we want to avoid making these substitutes. The first thing that we can substitute for actual application, knowledge only. In this substitute, we deceive ourselves into believing that knowing the Bible and what it says is enough. We're excited to learn about the Bible. We want to have a great understanding of doctrine, but we never actually put it into practice. This is actually Uh, even more dangerous situation than not knowing the Bible, as we just talked about. This application calls into question whether we really learned what the passage says in the first place. It is for this reason that Jesus was constantly saying things like this to the Pharisees. Do you not know? Have you not read? These Pharisees knew the scriptures well. They were experts in the law, but they didn't actually apply it. They thought they had because they merely knew about it. Beware, knowing what the Bible says does not count as application. Second, another substitute for application is superficial obedience. Superficial obedience. Here, there is some attempt to apply God's Word, but it's not real because the application is only in areas or situations where it's easy to apply the word. For example, we might pat ourselves on the back for obeying God's command to love our neighbors as ourselves because we did something really kind for one of our good friends. But, at the same time, we don't pay any attention to our continued hatred towards a difficult family member. Can we truly say we've applied God's word? Can we truly say that we have loved our neighbor in that instance? Jesus actually says, the same thing in the Gospels, when speaking um, from Luke, I think this is his Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plateau. He says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So applying the Bible only where it's easy does not count as applying the Bible. So we want to be aware of superficial obedience. Thirdly, we want to be aware of rationalization. And this is a big one. Can somebody tell me what rationalization actually means? Very good. That's an excellent explanation, uh, Beth. When we rationalize, we're coming up with an explanation, or almost arguing against something. And when it comes to the Bible and application, rationalization is not something we want to do, because we're trying to avoid application by some sort of faulty argument. We really want to be aware of this. We try to justify ourselves for not obeying God's principles. For example... It's common for people to underreport the taxes that they owe to the government. Perhaps you've been you've experienced this temptation yourself. I was aghast when I discovered on my state tax return that New Jersey has something called a use tax. Does anybody know what that is? Eric, can you tell me what that is? Yeah, that's right. If you didn't pay taxes on a good that you bought outside the state, you're supposed to pay New Jersey that tax. <clears throat> now, the funny thing about this tax is it's very hard for the government to actually check what you have bought out of state. So there is a temptation to underreport or to not report it at all. In fact, we may feel even justified doing so because we give excuses like the following. It's such a small amount. It won't even matter. It's not a big deal. Or we say, nobody else is paying this tax, I'm sure. Why should I be the only one? Or we might say, the government is so greedy. Even a use tax, they don't deserve this money. I've already paid a huge amount. They don't deserve any more. Or we might say, the government is corrupt. It's full of leaders I didn't elect and policies that I don't agree to. Why give more money to a government that's just going to mishandle it and use it for things that aren't even biblical. This is rationalization. This is when we argue with the Bible and explain it away and ignore its clear commands like render to Caesar what is Caesar's and submit to every institution of man. And those commands, if we remember the historical context, were given to early Christians who did not like their government and were even being persecuted by it and being put to death by that government at various times. Talk about an evil, corrupt government. But Jesus says, give to your government what it is due. And the government is the one that really decides that. Thinking through the principles of the Bible and how we ought to apply them is important. I'm not saying we shouldn't be rational. We ought to be thinking about thinking through the um, points of application. But we must be careful that we don't come up with faulty arguments to justify our not applying the Bible. Doing so actually leaves us disobedient and unjustified before God. And this is not a place we want to be. Rationalization, of course, does not count as application. Two more. Emotional experience. Here we can also deceive ourselves into thinking, by having an emotional experience, we've applied scripture. We deceive ourselves into thinking that just being emotionally affected is enough. The truths of the Bible truly ought to emotionally affect us. Emotions are important. Even in Revelation, in the passage that we've looked at, Jesus tells Laodicea to be zealous and repent. And we took time to notice what does zealous mean? What does it mean to be zealous? Yeah, it has a lot of emotion to it, right? The way I defined it, I think that would be a good definition too, to be passionate, but to have strong feelings for or against something. He says, your feelings are important. I want you to recover your feelings for me, and then I want that to ultimately produce what? What did Jesus tell the Laodiceans? He was looking for from them. Something similar, he said that to the Ephesians, but... Something similar to the Laodiceans. What were you going to say, Gabriella? Right, he said, repent. Be zealous and repent, which is going to produce fruit. Specifically what? Say that again. Yeah, what, what, kind, what, what does it mean to be, um, what would those fruits look like? Yeah, so humility and, um, I heard something else over here. Right. Those are different ways that he's describing that process of repenting and believing, essentially, the gospel again, believing him again. Remember, what was the first thing that he identified as being problematic with the church? They were lukewarm, which manifests itself in what? Alan, do you remember? Why did he want to spit them out? The lukewarmness was showing up in their what? Their deeds, right? Remember he says, I know your deeds, that you are lukewarm. Their hearts were the problem, but their deeds were the symptom of that. So he says, I want those deeds to be right, but you have to fix your heart first. So once you're truly affectionate for me and you've repented, then I want to see those true deeds, those truly refreshing deeds, those deeds that are hot and cold. So, emotions are important. However, you and I can probably testify that we have sometimes been emotionally affected by something related to Jesus without it actually changing us. Maybe it was the words of a song that we were singing in church and suddenly caused you to cry tears of joy. Or maybe it was the words of a sermon that just really convicted you and shook you. Or maybe it was the way you felt after you committed a sin. You just felt overwhelming guilt and shame and sadness. Those emotions are fine. Sometimes they're even helpful. But those intense emotional experiences do not count as applying the scripture if they're not tied to any change towards righteous living. The Bible says something like this when it talks about Esau. It says that Esau sought repentance with what? Tears, right? He was very emotionally affected by his state. He wished that he could repent, but he was not affected enough to actually repent. His heart was not humble and contrite before God. For this reason, the New Testament calls Esau a godless person. He did not know God at all or experience the reward of God. He did not actually apply the scripture. So we must be careful also to not think that we have finished applying a truth where we have only felt emotionally affected. Perhaps, based on our study in Revelation, you've felt emotionally affected. Good! That is an important part of it. But you are going to prove whether that emotion is true or, and helpful or not by whether you actually obey the word. Emotion by itself does not mean you have applied the Bible. So we want to be careful that we do not substitute only emotion for application. Finally, another dangerous substitute for application is truth communication. What is this? Well, this is we deceive, the following. We deceive ourselves by thinking that Telling others about the truth, telling others about a certain principle that they need to apply counts as our applying it ourselves. <clears throat> Even though we don't obey the command, we don't obey a certain command, we tell others to. and we think that that is enough. to be sure, telling others the gospel and teaching them the commands of God is obedience of a certain sort. and the scriptures does tell us to do this. We are told to make disciples. we are told to share the gospel. However, it is possible to do that without actually applying the truths that we're talking about in our own lives. And in that sense, we have not applied the word. We can tell others about how much of a treasure Jesus is for us, but if our lives do not reflect that, have we truly applied that truth? Or we can exhort others to pray, but what if we don't pray consistently? Or we can tell others to obey certain commands of God, but what if we don't obey them? This does not count. As application, This was a mark of the Pharisees, and Jesus pointed this out in his own words from Matthew. Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things, and do not do them. So he said, hey, they are telling you the truth, and you should obey that. However, don't do what they do, because they don't actually apply the Bible. So we can deceive ourselves in the same way, by thinking that not only knowing the truth would count as application, but that telling others the truth would count as application of those truths. Again, we ought to share the gospel and instruct one another in the truth. But for application to be real in our own lives, we must do the word, not just speak it. So again, these are five dangerous substitutes for application that we want to be beware of. And these things are really they're going to Prevent us from getting to the joy of God. So we want to be especially on guard. Any questions or comments before we move on from these? I think that's one of the reasons why, and that's a great point, Steve. Um, the Pharisees do embody a lot of these errors. I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible talks about deeds so much. You, know? you might say, well, oh, it's the gospel by faith. It's you know, faith alone, grace alone. And yes, that's totally true. But God really wants to emphasize, well, how are you actually going to know that that's real? How are you going to actually show that, uh, that you have these things truly inside you, these real emotions, these real beliefs? That's yeah, through your works. through what you actually do on the outside, through what, what can be seen many times. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. Again, there are some, there are some nuances to even the um, the principle that we were seeing before about not pressuring a brother to violate his conscience. Just kind of like with rationalization here, we can, it might be hard to tell the difference between actually biblically showing that you don't have to obey a certain command and someone accusing you of rationalizing. You say, oh, why aren't you obeying the Sabbath? Are you just rationalizing the scripture? Are you just trying to explain away the, the command to obey the Sabbath? They say, ah, no, not really. The same thing same thing with what you're talking about, um, Bill. When it comes to issues of conscience, there are certain things that are really good to hold to, and people might say, "Oh, that's just a conscience issue." Well, maybe it's not, and I think sometimes we we assume that it is. It's <clears> a <throat> good point. Any other questions or comments? These are really good. So we've looked at the process of application, and we've also looked at dangerous substitutes for application. I'd like to take the last part of our time to think about and discuss the application of the passage in Revelation that we've been studying. So, if you could turn your Bibles over to Revelation 3 once again, Revelation 3: 14 to 22. I'll read this passage one more time, and then I'll go with, or I'll ask you to help me go through the process of application using this passage. Revelation 3: verses 14 to 22. Hopefully, you remember the things that we've learned that we've discussed in this passage from our walking through the process of interpretation. So here's verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Let's go back to the process of application. What was the first step again? What's the first thing we want to make sure we do when it comes to applying the Bible? No. We want to know, right? We want to be able to actually say, do we understand this passage? And then what are the principles, the true principles from God illustrated in that passage? So I ask you, what principles, probably more than one since this is a larger passage, what principles can we identify from this passage in Revelation and from our study of it? What's one. Can you explain that a little bit more? Mm. Mm. So yeah, you, you're right, Yolanda. Apathy, this sort of devotion to God, is reprehensible to God. If we find that in ourselves, we're in a dangerous situation according to this passage. That's a principle that's definitely true and uh, evident in this passage. What else? Yeah, Steve. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we do see the danger of not really knowing what you are, right? We can go a little bit too far in self-examination and we stop looking at Christ. That's to be noted. But making sure that we don't have a false view of ourselves That's another thing that we see here in this passage. We have to recapture a right view of ourselves and of God. right? Because he says, buy from me gold. Do you know I have gold? Do you know that my gold is better than anything that you could have? We've got to recapture that. What else? Gabriella. Okay. Yeah, we're not only seeing a principle from the substance of this passage, but even a principle from how we studied it. That when you look at something written to Laodicea, it was really enlightening to actually know a little bit about the historical background. So that's a principle that we would want to take in other passages. Is that what you mean? No. Right. Yeah. Good. What's another principle? I think, really, what this passage comes down to is really that basic concept, right? What Shay was sharing. That your treasure must be Christ. It cannot be things in the world. Because this is what happens when it is. You become very vulnerable to God's judgment. These people thought they had no needs because they were very rich. They had abundant prosperity. But Jesus says, "You you are now looking to that instead of me. You must repent. To summarize some of these principles, I'll say this. Some things that we want to remember that go beyond this passage. Half-hearted deeds and hearts are repulsive to God. Divided hearts come because there is idolatry present. It is very dangerous and reprehensible to God to idolize the blessings he gives you instead of God himself, instead of worshiping God himself. Such a heart and deeds situation requires repentance in order to escape God's wrath. Repentance will come through, as was mentioned, a rediscovery or a discovery for the first time of who Jesus actually is, the supreme ruler and treasure worthy of all our affection. If we repent in this way, we will be rewarded. Remember, he promises reward, but what is the reward? Himself. Intimacy with him. So these are part of the true and excellent principles put on display in this passage, but we want to go to the second step, again, of the application process. Not just know, but we also want to take time to, what was the second one? Meditate and relate. Yes, we want to meditate and relate it to ourselves. So we don't have too much time left, but let's start doing this. Or how are these principles relevant to us in our own day? How can we apply these principles? I ask you, is this relevant? How? Mm. Mm. Right. We have to ask ourselves the same questions that Jesus was prompting the Laodiceans to ask. And I feel like this is especially important for us as Americans, right? Because there are probably no richer group of Christians on the whole earth. We practically are the church of Laodicea, or we could be. So we do have to ask those questions. Are we indeed seeing, our, seeing Christ as our treasure, or are we really just satisfied with our things? <clears throat> what are some other ways that we see application? or more specific examples of what we just said. That's a, great, that's a great insight, Yolanda. <clears throat> we need the Lord to show us this, and one of the ways that he does that is through the word, right? I hope this whole series has been pointing you to your need for the Bible. And um, that's not the only way, of course, that he, he is communicating to us. He also uses the brethren to tell us the truth in the Bible and the instruction of the, of the word through preaching and things like that. But uh, we need the word. If you don't think you need the Bible, then you haven't learned from Laodicea. If you don't think you need it daily, if you don't think you need it deeply, then you are in danger of the same things that they were. You say, ah, I don't need it. I'm not going through any crisis. Things are going well. I'm happy with my life. And you are so in danger of drifting away from God. <clears throat> just to summarize some other things that we can apply from this word based on my own thought. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just some of the things I've been thinking based on this passage. This, along the lines of what Yolanda was just sharing, should change the way we view other Christians, The church the Bible and prayer we need all of it if you say I don't really need to be with those believers or yeah just just on Sunday and then let's get out right away I think you missed the point here you actually need each other we need each other and other scriptures emphasize that too right you can't take yourself away from the body like an eye would take itself away or a foot would take itself away we all need what each other supply you can't take yourself away from prayer I like what Piper actually says. I didn't bring this up last time when we were looking at the commentaries, but he says something really um, poignant. Let me quote from him on his sermon on this passage. He says, In verse 17, Jesus tells us that an essential part of lukewarmness is ignorance of our true spiritual condition and satisfaction with the way we are. He says this, You can take your spiritual temperature by whether you feel in your heart a great need to seek God in prayer and fasting at the beginning of 1983. He preached the sermon uh, at the beginning of this session of prayer and fasting. The essence of lukewarmness is the statement, I need nothing. The lukewarm are spiritually self-satisfied. To find out whether you are among the number, don't look into your head to see if you think that you are needy. Rather, look at your prayer life. It doesn't matter what we think in our head. The test of whether we are in bondage to spiritual self-satisfaction is is how earnest and how frequent and how extended our prayers for change are. Do you seek the Lord earnestly and often in secret, for deeper knowledge of Christ, for greater earnestness in prayer, for more boldness in witness, for sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit, for deeper sorrow for sin, for warmer compassion for the lost, for some divine power to love, or is the coolness and perfunctoriness of your prayer life exhibit a that you are spiritually self-satisfied and lukewarm? So I thought that was really good. This should also change the way we, just briefly, it should change the way we view good works. We should be looking to do good deeds and enjoy them, not grudgingly. So when somebody asks you to serve in the church or there's an opportunity to serve in the church, you should be excited to do that if you understand what Jesus wanted you to see to understand. This should change the way we view prosperity in our possessions. We ought not to be satisfied in the different things of the world Even things that are fine and good, like games, books, movies, sex, alcohol, theater, performances, new clothes, power tools, getting in shape. Those things are all fine. But are you looking to them for your joy? Do we think that if we can only get a certain thing, that would bring us our happiness? Maybe we're not like Laodicea. We feel like we're poor. But if we can only get that thing, ah, then we'd be rich. That new job. That girlfriend. Getting married. Losing 20 pounds. $10,000 Ten thousand dollars more in the bank, PS4, a new apartment, traveling, winning fantasy football. But do we believe that that is the thing? That is the thing that will allow us to arrive? Yeah, we've missed the exhortation then, because we're we're trusting in something else as our treasure. It should change the way we view affliction and trials. God making you poor in your circumstances is a great mercy, because if He didn't, you wouldn't go to Him. Isn't that what He's showing us? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So you can think about your specific trials or hardships. And I know the Bible says rejoice in your, rejoice in your trials, rejoice in your hardships, but allow this to be a new reason for you to do so. Because if he didn't give you that, you probably wouldn't want to be satisfied in him. Finally, this should change the way we view a little bit evangelizing unbelievers. We sometimes think erroneously that, oh, man, their lives must be so depressed. I don't know how they get through the day. They don't have God. Oh, they don't feel that way. They feel, well, at least here in America, they feel pretty good. Life is not that bad. They have happiness. They enjoy things. But the problem is that they shouldn't. They shouldn't be joyful if they really knew what their situation was like. They think that their situation is fine. They're just likely to see it. We need to remember that when it comes to our witnessing. They don't really have the felt needs that we we think they do. They have to be shown their need, or they won't see the treasure of Christ. So, in summary, are you and I lukewarm? Is our church lukewarm? Are we half-hearted in devotion to Jesus and good works? If so, we've got to repent and believe the gospel again, committing to no longer live in an idolatrous way with our possessions by God's Spirit, making the changes that we need in our lives so that we don't fall back into idolatry. My wife, Emma, found a great verse that goes along with uh, what we've been talking about in Revelation. This is Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Good, Good way to close. Jesus, God, says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat, Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what is not satisfied? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Of course, the last part of the application, or application process is practice so I pray that God by his merciful help would allow us to put what we've talked about today into practice in our lives and that you'll continue to meditate on this and relate it to all the different areas of your lives next week our final lesson we'll look at errors to avoid and in interpretation as well as take a brief look at some of the most commonly misinterpreted passages let's pray as we close <clears throat> Holy Father thank you so much for this day Thank you for your exhortation. God, we fall short so much in treasuring you and in uh, showing our dependence to you. Lord, help us to really grasp what we what we see here, that we need you. We need you in our poverty. We need you in our prosperity. We need you even when we're in either of those places. We need you, God, truly every hour, just as the hymn says. So God, I pray that our prayer life, the way we come to the scriptures and the way that we pursue good deeds would all show that we're really understanding and applying what you say in the Word. Lord, bless the rest of the service today. Amen.